So the reading is taken from Matthew, chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. And that's on page 99, sorry, 990 of the um, Bibles and the Pews. Jesus spoke to the people again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who've been invited that I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention, and they went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, ill-treated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Parable is a story with uh, a meaning, perhaps several levels of meaning. And this one is about the kingdom of heaven like a king who gave a wedding feast or prepared uh, a wedding banquet for his son. The feast represents fellowship with God in his kingdom. And coming to the feast represents entering the kingdom. And when we hear about this, we think, aha, straight away, don't we? Our minds leap to Revelation 19, the celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Or do we think about the last wedding invitation that we received? Who is the person concerned marrying? Who's going to be there? Will it be a church wedding? Who's doing the catering? What shall I wear? A friend of Liz's came for lunch the other day in order to go and buy an outfit for a wedding. I go to a shop, personally, but they, she came to lunch. And it was all arranged beforehand. They went down, they went to about 17 shops, and in each one they reserved a garment until 4.23 so they could come back if they didn't find a nicer one and snap that one up and it would be there for them. They came back afterwards triumphant. They had found a frock and uh, a bag and a hat, and they were prescribed as excellent, very nice except for the bag, which was horrid and too small. <laughs> but this is a royal command. This is a king, the marriage feast for his son. And the guests don't come. It's shocking, isn't it? It's a scandal. What can it mean? Is this a picture of God rejecting his people? So we better look at the context. It comes after the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and he's teaching 
in the temple courts. He's teaching the chief priests, the elders, Pharisees, and the crowd. And it comes after two other parables, one about two sons, where the father says, go into the vineyard. And one of them says, no, but he does. And the other says, I go, and he doesn't. And Jesus says at the end of that parable, tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom of heaven before you. You didn't repent and believe John the Baptist, and they did. And there's another parable too, the parable of the tenants in the vineyard, where the master has built a vineyard with a tower and a wall and leased it to tenants. And the chief priests and the Pharisees know jolly well that Jesus is talking about them as the tenants. But they rebelled and they killed the servants that the master sent to collect the fruit. And eventually they killed the son the master sent in order to take his inheritance by force. And Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven will be taken away from you and given to a people who will give the master the fruit. And it comes before two others, one about the temple tax, which is about, is it lawful to pay tax to Caesar or not? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, God says, and render to God the things that are God's. And the seven woes, particularly addressed to the Pharisees, for uh, hypocrisy, for not practicing what they preach, which is quite scary to stand here and remind us of that. But there it is. The word hypocrite is the Greek word for an actor, somebody who performs. So I think this must be about relationship, it must be about response to God, it must be about rendering to God the things that are God's, and it must be about being real with God and not performance. So who is going to be at the wedding? The invitation is in at least two parts in those days, and we need to know what the parable would have meant to the people at the time to get some idea about what it might mean to us. Uh, the, the practice would have been to send out an invitation long before and then send another invitation saying, it's ready now, come, it's today, come now, now, now. Now is the hour. Well, in this particular parable, there might have been as many as three because the servants in, in verse 2 are sent to the servants uh, that sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet, but they refused. They've refused the king. And then we think who might those servants have been? What might have happened long before? Perhaps the first invitation is to Abraham in Genesis 12, leave and I will bless you, there'll be descendants, there'll be a land, there'll be a blessing, and in your seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. That's the first covenant. That perhaps is the first invitation, leave your land. Come out to where you are and come to me. Joshua, when it's time to cross the River Jordan into the land, by now there are descendants, they have been blessed, tick those two, and now the land is being given to them, tick that, and God says, I will give you every place on which you set your foot. And, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. It's quite an invitation, really, isn't it? The wedding feast, of course, goes on for days. But this is, this is quite an invitation. The 
first three parts of the invitation to Abraham are fulfilled, and the fourth, in your seed, in Jesus, shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Isaiah 55, come, an invitation, come, drink without money, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Nations who you do not know will hasten to you because the Lord your God has endowed you with splendor. Perhaps that's a marriage garment. That's the invitation long before. And then those first servants, perhaps they're Abraham, Joshua, Isaiah, the prophets, the teachers of the, the scripture, the law, perhaps world events, but they won't come. And then he sends other servants again, the second lot, in verse 3. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who've been invited that I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle have been slaughtered. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. Paid no attention to the king. It's shocking. My affairs are much more important. My farm, my business, much more important than responding to God's invitation, they seem to say. And worse, some of them killed the servants. Who might these servants be? Perhaps John the Baptist? Who said the kingdom of heaven is at hand and was executed in prison? Perhaps even Jesus, who within a week of this parable would be crucified. Within a week of this parable, the kingdom of God would be established at the cross. It's a pretty poor show, isn't it? So, what's the king's response? It's judgment. What did he do? king was enraged, he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. Within 35 years, Jerusalem has been destroyed. Temple has been destroyed. The Romans have come and have destroyed it. In the Old Testament, God used kings from other countries, from Assyria, uh, from Babylon, Persia, in order to bring about change for his people. Sometimes that's judgment, sometimes it's restoration. In AD 70, not all the Jewish people perished. Don't therefore think that this is a statement that God has cast off his people. In AD 70, not all the Jewish people perished. Uh, Christians weren't in the temple. If they'd paid attention to Jesus' prophetic command in Matthew 24, when you see the abomination which causes desolation standing in the holy place, flee to the hills. Don't flee to the city. Flee to the hills and escape the siege and the destruction that followed. The, the, the Jewish revolt arose because the Romans put their eagles, their, 
their standards, idols, in the holy place, the holiest place in the temple. Desecration. That's when you see the abomination which causes desolation standing in the holy place. So Jesus gave a specific warning against the siege and destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And we know, don't we, that by AD 57, there's a group of Christians in Rome because Paul writes to them. He writes to the Christians in Rome. So that's before this has happened. So before the destruction of Jerusalem, the church, by, by persecution, by God's guidance, by encouragement, by a desire to spread the word, has done so. A small group of a dozen and more Galileans and some others and some women and the old Roman centurion and some Greeks, Samaritans and Ethiopian, have begun to reach out to the other people who receive the invitation. Other tenants. And it's still going on with us, isn't it? And the hall, in verse 10, is filled with guests. Now this is odd, isn't it? Both good and bad. So God's grace is not based on merit. And if you want to know more about the New Covenant, then Hebrews 8 and 9 and Jeremiah 31 will explain, I think, that it's not replacement of Israel, but it's, as Paul explains, being part of God's original plan and purpose. But it's a wedding, so what am I going to wear? There's a man there without wedding clothes, without a wedding garment in chapter 11. A Cinderella moment. What would the listeners have made of that at the time? He hadn't changed for the wedding, either his clothes or his life. The king supplies the wedding garment. That's the first thing. And not to wear it is an insult. God gives us entry into the kingdom. There's no other way in except with his wedding garment. Um, the king providing the garment comes from uh, Judges, the story of uh, Samuel, uh, Samson's wedding when uh, the father of the bride uh, invites 30 companions for him and uh, there's a riddle then about who's going to provide. Samuel, Samson is expected to provide the garments for them and he, he, he makes his riddle and comes by them another way. Uh, in Esther 6, um, Haman, Haman is telling the king what should be done for the man the king wants to honor. Uh, clothes uh, provided by the king, worn by the king, uh, for the man who the king wishes to honor. And this is grand, and then you remember, because we did it the other day, didn't we? Uh, the king then says, go and put him on, on Mordecai. Change his status. He's sitting outside. He's now going to be in the kingdom. Give him new clothes, my clothes, that match his new status. Uh, there's the story in, in Genesis 45, where Pharaoh offers the best land in Egypt to Joseph's family and tells Joseph to invite them in, give them the best land in Egypt in which to settle. And Joseph passes that message on, and with the message he gives a change of clothes to each member of his family. Benjamin gets five, but the rest of them get one each. So what does that mean? Shepherds 
are an abomination at the time in Egypt. My son um, has sheep, and you can smell them on him sometimes. My brothers-in-law keep sheep, and, sorry darling, you can smell it sometimes on their clothes. What we do lingers. But in order to be free of the abomination, going into Egypt, Jacob and his family are given clean, new clothes. They give up their old life as shepherds, and they settle, and they're given a change of clothes. You can look at Ezekiel 16 as well, where God first washes uh, his bride, washes off the blood, and then God provides clothes of wonderful richness uh, for her. Paul talks about uh, imputed righteousness, being seen as righteousness because of what we're wearing um, in Romans 3. But we've recently had Galatians 3.16 as well. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So the wedding garment in some ways, I think, might be Jesus himself. The king's reaction is extraordinary, isn't it? In uh, 11 and 12, this chap sort of sneaked in somehow without the wedding garment. The king's provided this garment, and he's snuck in without it. And uh, he says, friend, how'd you get in without wedding clothes? Perhaps this gives the person a chance to say, what could he have said as a potentially satisfactory answer. I know it's a guess, but he might have said, well, nobody told me you'd provided one. Word didn't reach me that I needed this. Uh, in Acts 19, Paul arrives at Ephesus, and there are some people there who've heard about John's baptism of repentance. But they hadn't heard about Jesus' baptism of forgiveness. In this case, the friend has no answer. And so he's thrown out. So how does this wedding garment apply to us? Clearly we need it. It's not optional in the kingdom of God. Is it perhaps an admission ticket, like a believer's baptism certificate, a bit of paper, a sign of an event, an inward reality, not just a ritual, not just a performance, not hypocrisy? Is it perhaps changed behavior? Remember when Jesus healed the man in the tombs, the chap with the, uh, filled with demons who um, broke his chains and, and, and lived in uh, naked and uh, under the power of this uh, devil. When Jesus heals him, 
the people come and they see him clothed and in his right mind. And they are fearful of God because they've seen his power at work. Changed behavior seems to be perhaps an aspect of the wedding garment, not just imputed righteousness, seen as righteous. There's 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. God has reconciled us to himself and given us a ministry of reconciliation. So there's the invitation. Come. How do I get hold of the garment? How do I put it on? That's John 1.12, I think. As many as received him, to them God gave the power to become the sons of God, even to those who believed on his name. We know that, don't we? An inner reality, a new birth, as he described to Nicodemus. Believe and receive. Not just a cloak to cover sin. Not just a cloak to cover sin. Not just a washed and brushed up certificate. But a sign that we're living a new life in Christ day by day. So not wearing the garment means what? Oh, I don't think I need it. I'm not being serious with God. I want to enter his kingdom on my terms. I want to live in his kingdom on my terms. I'm too busy. I've got other things to do. Fields to look at, a business to run. I wonder if it might mean that we're sometimes ashamed to be seen as God's people. Our allegiance to him known. We're uh, walking through the streets of the town, going to the wedding, incognito, indistinguishable from the crowd. In some places it's very, very difficult, I think, to wear your wedding garment in public in North Korea or in Pakistan, or in Syria. Much harder, much harder than we can rather easily say here. But we are going to be identified a bit by our behavior, by our changed life. We look and sound different, that's our witness. But it's not just being seen as righteousness because Jesus died that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, I don't know really what the garment is. Is it sanctification? Is it a resurrection body? Or is it perhaps our working clothes clothed with and indwelt by Jesus himself by faith? Not pretending, not performing a ritual, not one day out of seven, seven out of seven. We may need to be willing to be seen as his people. We may need to be willing to give up some of our old clothes and our old habits. We may need to be willing to change for the kingdom. We may need to be willing to slim down to pass through the eye of the needle. Jesus' wedding garment is not like a morning coat or a buttonhole or a fascinator, not to be found in a shop 
but we may need to search. It's free. It fits perfectly for every day. It doesn't appear to include a handbag. It's not to be left in the cupboard for moth. It doesn't shrink. It seems to expand as we do. It doesn't turn back into a pumpkin at the end of the service or the end of the day or even at the end of our lives. It's not an effort to get into it, but it might be an effort of will to put it on, and to put it on by faith. It's perhaps the whole armor of God, not quite the waistcoat of righteousness or the fascinator of salvation or the tie-pin of the Spirit, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, standing on the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, every day. It's not dressing up. It's a Christian's walking clothes. It's a Christian's working clothes. It's a Christian's worshipping clothes. Please can we put it on. Amen.